If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. Welcome to a bonus episode of Take Line. We're releasing this later in the week after I did an interview with writer and editor Matt Sullivan. He's the author of a fascinating and entertaining new book called Can't Knock the Hustle, Inside the Season of Protest, Pandemic, and Progress with the Brooklyn Nets Superstars of Tomorrow. Uh, it's a really uh, intriguing and interesting conversation about the modern NBA athlete and, and the experience of playing professional basketball in the years 2020 and 2021. Please check it out. We hope to release more bonus material like this, so make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And now, Matt Sullivan. Matt, so much to get into on this uh, this really excellent book that you wrote. I have uh, many questions, perhaps chief among them, how you managed to write a book that contains information that happened like three weeks ago <laughs> as part of, you know, like with the Nets being recently eliminated from the playoffs. Uh, do you have a time turner? How were you able to do that? And how long have you been working on this? You know, they say contemporaneous history, right? And I feel like we're in such a, can I curse on this? Yeah. Such a fucking time warp the last couple of years that my head is spinning, but I've got good sourcing and it's just kind of kept rolling because the drama of, of the world and, and this team has kept going. I started on the day that Woj called, quote, the clean sweep, right? Which was the beginning of free agency 2019. And I was walking my dog that day. And my neighbor was my fellow Dookie, Jay Williams. And we were like literally looking at our dog's poop <laughs> and talking about, you know, he has this kind of on again, off again relationship with KD. And he's like, man, these are a bunch of characters. They've been reported on forever. but you know, there's a lot more there. No one's given him a fair shake. And this is just going to be such a great scene. I started thinking about it. And my kind of mentor, now literary agent, David Granger, who is a longtime editor-in-chief of Esquire, he just sent me like weird cryptic email saying, someone should write a book, dot, dot, dot. That was the subject line. And then just said about the Nets, you know, is Kyrie crazy? KD coming back from rehab? New owner, Alibaba, a t- team that actually likes playing in Brooklyn. And so I just jumped in. I knocked on the door. They gave me a press pass and said, make friends and earn trust. And the last year and a half has been, uh, you know, I fell into the history books, man. Well, there's so much going on in this book and particularly with this team that seems like it's at the nexus of just a bunch of different forces, whether it's the rise of Chinese capitalism and its influence in the broader economy, social justice, so-called player empowerment movement, on and on. Uh, you've gotten some uh, some really, uh, I guess, unexpected and fun PR when uh, Kevin Durant responded to an excerpt uh, from the book about um, Steve Kerr trying to get him off of Twitter. Was that... <laughs> 
you know, Katie is an extremely online person, but were you expecting something like that, some kind of a response like that? Yeah, I mean, he claps back at the media a lot. Usually it's to correct the record and polish his legacy. You'll notice he didn't clap back to question the reporting at all because I was like extremely thorough with everything, 400 interviews deep, but also, you know, when you're recreating dialogue, you got to talk to both sides. And I would have to kind of read this line by line to Steve Kerr to make sure that when he took him out to a drink at the bar, they said this and said that and, and you know, said this advice, fuck it. And Katie remembered that. Uh, I like literally walked across the street and like checked it with both sides. <laughs> like we, Steve Kerr was practicing at a gym at Chelsea Piers and Katie's places across the street. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that KD is engaged with it. I hope he reads the whole thing. I know Kyrie's, you know, got a stack of copies. And I think the Nets strategy is to kill this thing with silence because I kind of pierced their Kremlin-esque wall. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that it's um, becoming a bigger conversation and not just some drama-filled back-and-forth rumor-mongering because that's kind of the point of the book. Well, I, I, I'll say the things that the Nets actually do kill it are uh, are impressive. You, you talk about access, and you know this is a team that the the Brooklyn Nets that the three star players that they have, KD, uh, James Harden, and Kyrie, wield outsized influence within the organization. You know, probably you know. Uh, even within a time, within an era where players have a lot of say, or at least seem to within the way their teams are run, what did you encounter with regards to that uh, in terms of the way people responded to that? Do, do those players have an outside influence in the team? And like, what is the response to that? Because I, I think one of the things I'm struck by uh, during this era of the NBA is the amount of panic that players with influence uh, generate within league circles and even journalistic circles and people that have followed the sport for a while? I think people are scared of superstars. And obviously LeBron kicked off the player empowerment movement and this kind of player as pseudo GM thing where you know, pick up a ring chaser here and a cheap guy there and they get the final say. That much has not changed. And I think Kyrie you know, took that playbook from LeBron, KD, picked that up from his various super teams and superstar teammates. But the Nets were kind of ready for it. I think that's the thing. They they built up this image publicly of, okay, we've got this fancy practice facility and the Joe Harris's and Spencer Dinwiddie's of the world. We picked up off the scrap heap and built them into these studs. But I think the whole plan was just get these big dogs in the door and let them run the show. And so the amount of panic that has followed, it, it, it does fit the mold that I think we assume is there, but it, but it actually is. And I think you take someone like Sean Marks, a former player, he just kind of like, okay, let them do their thing. Kenny Atkinson, who's this kind of very hands-on systematic coach who really built the nets up from nothing, he didn't know how to play this game. He, he didn't know how to lean back and let these guys be themselves. I thought it was interesting. He once said of, of KD while he was hurt, you know, you got to leave the Maserati in the glass case. Steve Nash, when he comes in, he says, if you got a Lamborghini, it's not meant to be in the garage. I mean, these are just like right. totally unprovoked answers to different questions. But I thought it shows a different style where they had to kind of force out Kenny Atkinson in order to do things on their terms. They also had to force out certain players from last year to build the dynasty they wanted with their friends and favorite players. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit about how this team came together. There's that famous viral moment from All-Star 2019, Kyrie and, and Kevin Durant 
in the hallway, uh, seeming to uh, be scheming about something in animated fashion. Later, they would deny uh, questions uh, uh, that were asked about them teaming up. And then, of course, they did. Uh, There was heavy rumors on the street that Kevin Durant would be moving east, but joining the Knicks. I mean, this is kind of like lost to history now. You do touch on it, but like it, everyone who kind of knew, who knows stuff <laughs> was like, Katie's going to the Knicks. Katie's going to the Knicks. That was, that was, that was a widely held belief. How did, uh, how did they both, how did Kyrie and Katie end up in Brooklyn? Well, I know that you and I, as long-suffering Knicks fans, really hope that the two max slots met at the Garden. But that Zapruder tape was not not really the beginning of this partnership. There was a dinner up at Kyrie's place outside of Boston when the Warriors were playing there. It was early. This is January 2019. Wine's flowing. You know, the vegan burgers and the vegan smoothies are playing as themselves in 2K. So that's really kind of a genesis moment. My reporting at least indicates that KD had decided to go to Brooklyn while he was still playing in the finals with the Dubs in 2019. This is kind of when Kyrie is putting together his pieces. He's got that kind of half GM control going on. He's making moves that the coach didn't really want to be making to put together some some vets and stuff like (laughs) that. So, I mean, what I find the funniest, and just as a fellow sad Knicks fan, is that so KD had basically decided to do this thing. He got hurt. He had still kind of decided to do this thing and come to Brooklyn. And yet the Knicks, their desperate executives, they set up this video chat with Katie's dad and are just like trying to lure him, even though he's already made up his mind. <laughs> so, you know, of all the recompense and, and hullabaloo over my book, I, I, I think the only thing that the NBA really has to look into is maybe the Knicks desperate tampering. I mean, it's not even t- that's uh... They've tampered so much harder than that, including, you know, signing uh, Chris Smith, J.R. Smith's brother to a contract in order to to uh, keep the vibes going on on a particular Knicks team. There's been I mean, this is I mean, tampering is cool. It, it should be out in the open. Right. But it was due to I. It's, it was due diligence. That was their due diligence. They had to take the shot. You have to take a shot. Would have been. I would have preferred if they would have landed it, but they. I mean, why do Katie Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan need to act like they had some mysterious four a.m. FaceTime call on the night of free agency when they've been planning to do this since like <laughs> 2016, smoking weed on a yacht yeah. at the Olympics? I mean, it's just the ruse should be over, and it sucks for the small market teams. But I think we've reached the point of like the Harden forcing him his way out of COVID-filled strip clubs in Texas and getting to Brooklyn for what? What did the Rockets get? Like Rodian's Kuruks for him? I mean, I think the player empowerment arc has, yeah, has I mean, they brought got, itself they, just so yeah. normalized. It's just so normalized and mainstream that I don't know why we're hiding anything at this point. Uh, <laughs> I'd say, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, one of the three uh, stars of the Brooklyn Nets, of course, is Kyrie Irving who is kind of a, you know, a mercurial figure, certainly one of the greatest scorers uh, currently in the NBA and one of the greatest ISO players. It's, you know, a key to the net success is the fact that they have probably three of the best one-on-one players currently playing. Um, but Kyrie's a, an interesting figure in the sense that, you know, due to various statements, probably beginning with 
uh, his uh, espousal of flat earth theory, um, he's viewed very differently by like the kind of general sporting public than he is by other athletes. Talk a little bit about that, about the way that Kyrie, what don't we, what don't the, what doesn't the general sporting public understand about the way Kyrie, uh, the esteem that Kyrie is held with? I think it's come a long way since that flat earther movement, just kind of as a man. He's big on saying, I'm young for my second career, right? And so he likes to push buttons. He likes to question the system, whether that's like the team medical staff or the government. And so the flat earther thing, I asked a dozen people close to him and, you know, they're saying, oh, it doesn't, he didn't believe it. Well, I mean, it's kind of dangerous to espouse conspiracy, conspiracy theory when more people engage with your Instagram than Donald Trump and certainly like every science teacher in America. But He's a humanitarian, like he'll give cash out on the street to people. Yep. He'll buy a house for George Floyd or a victim of gun violence who just says Kyrie's his favorite player like he did like three weeks ago. And so I think he's held in that esteem by players, but also because he calls a spade a spade and speaks up where like the guy on a vet minimum or a guy trying to make it out of the G League like can't say. So when Kyrie says... I hope there's yeah. no casual racism or subtle racism in Boston. You know, I've reported that in my book that he was feeling some of those vibes as early as 2017, 2018 season. But you see that was kind of gestating. And then he just puts it out there, right? Like Rachel Nichols asked an innocent question of like, what's it going to be like when you go back to Boston? He's like, And he just goes off. I mean, he's, he's kind of just speaking his mind, but he's doing it with a little yeah. bit of purpose. And I think more and more clarity so that he isn't as misunderstood. But I think He's kind of been all over the place in the past when he was a quote unquote younger man. And I think he's been villainized so much for that, that he's he's having trouble like getting through that tunnel to, to being a hero. Right. And I think that's a real mission of his and why he's taking a pause for paternity leave. And because it's you know, precipitated by the Capitol riot and the lack of charges against Jacob Blake, you know, it, he got caught on video at a maskless party. Sure. But. He was doing these things as yeah. a man, you know, away from his day job. Um, as a team, how have the Nets, you know, as players, uh, including Kyrie, like responded to this extremely tumultuous past 14 months that included not just a pandemic, that uh, the effects of which fell disproportionately on uh, minority communities, but also the the police violence that we've seen uh, perpetrated against people of color and, and the ensuing protests against that. How did, how did this team respond to those moments? Well, you know, I was out in the streets of Brooklyn. There were lots of protests around Barclays Center and management said it's like, you know, the town square. And that's all great. I've investigated like every police killing in America in a previous journalistic life. And so I care about this stuff. I talked honestly with guys about it. I don't mean to be divisive about it, but I do think there are two camps. A guy who, this really smart professor, um, left Loggins at Berkeley, who's advised a lot of players, including Kaepernick, Jalen Brown. He, ex he explains this, like the difference between the Hovites, almost like the, the Jay-Z style, kind of like mega celebrities who play it safe and do things behind the scenes, and like the captivists, right? Like the Kaepernick style guys who are willing to go all the way. And so I think you've got the NBPA, play it safe, get the donations from the, the owners, like, you know, the corporate version of activism, advocacy, really. And then you've got the wannabe activists who are sick of the retweets, and but yet who don't have a plan. And so I thought the whole Kyrie 
bubble-busting coalition of the unwilling with Avery Bradley and Dwight Howard. You know, like Dwight Howard has never been political in his life, but all of a sudden he's like, this is a bad look to go to the bubble. And so, you know, John Carlos was telling me that these guys sought his counsel, but he was saying, this isn't about symbols anymore. You're like in the pool of this. You're in the moment. Hit them in the pocket. Hit the owners where where it hurts. And I think, you know, Kyrie couldn't get his... You know, couldn't get the eyes, so to speak. And so that whole call, the disruptor was definitely a shit show. But there wasn't a lot of follow up either. And so it's like movements have been forever, right? There was Martin and Malcolm there. There's a it's 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 a divide. It's still in the, a problem with the movement now. And I think the NBA hasn't figured out that kind of mini schism. Everybody's fighting the good fight. But it's interesting to see the Nets have that almost internecine thing where, you know, Kyrie didn't want this guy Garrett Temple back on the team because Garrett was playing the very like, you know, union brass card, whereas Kyrie's going a little rogue, which is his style. And I think people would say once the Bucks went on strike, like, well, he was right all along. Yeah. Um, what was the what was the vibe between Kyrie and, and Garrett as that was going down? Like with chemistry wise within the team, is was that an issue? I don't think it like it's weird how guys can be in the corner of the gym together as the veterans who know what they're doing one day. And then, you know, this has obviously been a tumultuous, tumultuous year and, and tons of history unfolding before us. But I just thought it was interesting what Garrett was telling me. This was on like election day. He was changing his newborn son's diaper. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, we're talking about player empowerment. He says players have a lot of say nowadays in this league. And then I'm like, yeah, but, you know, Kyrie and you didn't really agree on that controversial call. And then you wanted to go to the bubble and get the owners to give money and, you know, get on one knee and raise your fists in the air. And he was like, yeah, but I haven't talked to Kyrie since then, you know, and, and he's and that not even on, they were both mm. on the union. They're both VPs of the NBPA. They hadn't talked like Kyrie hadn't been on all those calls since then because he was doing his own thing. And so Garrett told me, quote, players in the leadership, if you go against what they want you to do, then they won't want you back. If that's the case, then I don't want to be on this team. But Kyrie is the enigma of the century. So who knows? That's the thing. It's like, who knows? Right. Wow. So. I mean, we've been talking about player empowerment, and it is a, a discussion point and will continue to be one uh, for many years, I think, uh, for various reasons. But I think, you know, as, again, long-suffering Knicks fans, I think the thing that that I'm interested in is, from your reporting, how does one lure an empowered player to a team? What is the pitch? Because that player empowerment essentially means that you've got to make a pitch now. It's not just like you're going to trade for a guy, you're going to uh, throw a bag of money on a table. What else? What else uh, What else is there in this opportunity for the player that makes them feel like they're part of the process? They can, they can, they can reap the benefits of the team's success in a way that's more equitable. That's not just money. That's also influence, et cetera. So how, how, how does the team go about doing it? I mean, I think the playbook is evolving, right? Like, LeBron sort of chose the Lakers and Rob Blink is awesome and knows yeah. how to build a great franchise, but they didn't have it quite figured out yet. You know, Dame Willard doesn't know really where he wants to go because who's going to give him both the ball and the vibe and you know, go home. I, I think the Nets have been, again, just kind of a crucible for that. And I think Steve Nash is really figuring it out. Like Sean Marks knew how to promise you can build the team you want. Here's the a nice city, nice facility. Kyrie comes home. KD gets to do what he wants. But what Kenny Atkinson didn't do, and we got fired out, 
fired for and forced out for is that he didn't know how to babysit, but do it with authority. And so <laughs> I, I, I don't know if Steve Nash right. ever let this out this year, but his motto internally was, quote, protect the group, right? And that, that meant building this insulated bubble. KD likes to call it Nets world, right? And that's what NBA Twitter kind of calls this. But, but it really means insulating <laughs> Kyrie from the media. It means letting KD hoop in an empty gym without the noise. And I think that also means not just Steve Nash leaning back and say, okay, let Kyrie disappear for a couple of days and don't grumble about it. But it's also saying, yo, your boy DeAndre Jordan is washed. He's not getting these minutes anymore. And I know because I'm Steve Nash. So it's it's yeah. a balancing act in addition to right. the attendant luxuries and the blank checks and get whatever the hell you want. Don't take the team plane, fly private, disappear. Like it's a lot of juggling act. And I think that's why you see a lot more like players in front offices, big time stars, the Jason Kids of the world getting these jobs to handle, you know, the the growing Luca personality. I think you'll see a lot more play, former players in these high profile roles and hopefully more diverse people in them too. Yeah, Mavs just, well, this is not going to uh, fill that uh, particular uh, checkbox, but it makes sense for this team. The Dallas Mavericks, of course, recently hired uh, Dirk Nowitzki to be a consultant. And, you know, you can translate that to uh, Luca Whisperer, essentially. And I think you're right. That's as players uh, and their influence grows, you're just going to need people that understand their particular experience that work within the team. Well, that that's why it's become accepted that, you know, your best friend is going to be a rebounder on the team payroll, which is just kind of par for the course at this point. I've heard when you mentioned uh, don't disappear and don't say anything, uh, when Kyrie went on a, he took a, some, an amount of time for, uh, for personal days, like mental health, I think was eventually the thing that they landed on. But what I heard was that nobody knew where he was for a number of those days, like the first part of it. Nobody was really sure exactly where Kyrie was. It's an open secret that Kyrie disappears from teams. And he is very open, not secretly, about his mental health being part of that, that it's okay to have what Jackie McMullen's called a mood swing. He said, that's normal. It is. When he was in Boston, it would be one day, maybe two. Maybe that rubbed some guys the wrong way who weren't used to it. Because guys weren't used to that, he wanted to go somewhere where that was not frowned upon. During his shoulder injury in late 2019, early 2020, he disappeared from the team. There were many people, like the most high-ranking people in the basketball operations group, did not know where he was. Kenny Atkinson wondered if he should skip his own game, like not head coach an NBA game. <laughs> to go fly on Kyrie's plane, to go to his like second, third, fourth opinions in Phoenix or whatever. He legitimately wondered that. He regretted not doing it. And so this is the level of <laughs> headache that he is to management. But the you know, it's a cost benefit for even Joe Sai, who right, of course, has been yeah. frustrated with some of this stuff. So you flash forward to early 2021. Now Kyrie's having a kid. Totally cool. Goes with his well, it's just normal, but it goes with his particular outspokenness about basketball is my day job. I have a life. I have another career. I'm a family man. I'm a dad, which he really is a very hands-on dad. Like he'll be in his, he would be in his penthouse in, in Brooklyn, like with just his kid and his nanny and put his kid to bed every night and then just watch film and go to bed. I mean, he's a really hands-on thing, not no longer single dad. Anyway, January, 2021, 
he's got this sort of pre-planned pseudo paternity leave, but the team didn't really communicate well with him and he didn't communicate with them. Then the Capitol riot happens, the lack of charges against Jacob Blake, which is kind of that Kyrie was right all along bubble thing. And then he goes into, you know, his home life. And the Nets are kind of scared of piercing his bubble. They text his people wondering where he is. And the maskless birthday party kind of screwed him over. Like, that's its own Zapruder tape that extended the absence, that extended the what his you know family and yeah. friends described to me very recently as a spiritual, mental, and emotional break, which is cool. And it just got extended because of the NBA finding and having to look into the, that video. And so I think that rubbed some people higher up the wrong way. And he had to apologize, got his slap on the wrist. And, and look, I, I think it got out there somewhere that you know I thought he would be traded or something. And then people were whining about it, which is rare from the Nets brass. You know, they usually are pretty buttoned up. So I thought that was noteworthy, that, that grumbling. But I think it'll make him lock in more. And I think it's, it's like he's had his final big disappearing act. And I think it's time to lock in and get these three guys healthy and win a fucking championship already. Well, of course, that uh, that did not happen this year. The uh, injuries played a, a major factor, but of course, the Nets uh, did lose uh, in the playoffs against the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, it seemed from the outside looking in just, uh, you know, from social media that there was no shortage of glee at the at the upon the defeat of the Brooklyn Nets um, within the league. What, was there a similar glee? I f- uh, at the at the loss that the net that the Nets suffered, I think you hear players being like, "Damn, even the Nets lost." And, and it's not that whole Warriors like it's unfair running up the score thing. I think it's just like, "Damn them!" Like really. And so, I think there was an air of just relief across the league. But I think I don't know. The Nets might not have been ready. For the not all injuries aside, for that real dynasty run, and they just—it's been such a weird two years. And I think players, while I followed the 2019-2020 season yeah. when everything was happening, I think this past season was just players don't get enough credit for getting through all the testing and getting shit stuck up your nose, like right before tip off, and not being agree. able to hang out yeah. with your friends and. And I think it was just a distraction upon a distraction. And people call these guys a distraction and villains. And Steve Nash is out here in one press conference being like, we're the villains. Rawr. But I don't, I'm not sure they want to be the heels of the <laughs> NBA, but I think they're okay with it if need be. And so I think their definition by other people means less and less to them by the day, even though people get on you know, KD for being soft and clapping back on Twitter about it. I mean, he's, uh, I, I actually love how outspoken he is about it. Um, you know, what, one of the things that I think I've noticed and that it's totally normal, it's totally normal. I think one of the things that's really hard to miss about the way we talk about today's NBA is that as we get farther from the influence of Michael Jordan and his gigantic footprint on the league, which extends even to, even though they're quite different players to the way we talk about LeBron, we still talk about LeBron within the archetype of the way we talk about Jordan. KD, Kyrie, a lot of these uh, younger players that are coming up in the in the post-LeBron player empowerment so-called era don't fit easily into that mold, whether it's Giannis not being the guy in the fourth quarter on his own team, uh, Kyrie being a mercurial, KD uh, being out loud with the way he responds to criticism from people, which is the thing that, of course, Jordan didn't do. Now, he didn't have social media in his day, but still. Um, 
have we, and this is kind of like an ethereal question, but do we just not understand how to talk about this generation of players separate from the way we talk about Michael Jordan, Magic Bird, LeBron, et cetera? Because it feels like part of the criticism that we lobby against these players is essentially they are not like Michael. I wonder if as legendary as our current generation, the LeBron, CP, Mello, Banana Boat generation will be forever known. If they're almost a bridge generation, you know, like they had to get us through this technological revolution, now through this historic pandemic, through uh, racial reckoning that's obviously long overdue and has been in the NBA. But you look at the next, next generation, the Bronies, the John Kaminga, who I got to know and wrote a lot more about before I had to cut it out because the history happened after, you know, built the second half of my book. And you look at like Emoni Bates and these guys live on the gram. They're outspoken in a way that's just second nature to them to, you know, not hold back about their politics and worry if they're not going to get a shoe deal because they got shoe deals when they were in diapers. And there's a transparency, there's a quote-unquote authenticity that I think we get on LeBron and, and KD for having. And they're really, really good at social media, but they did, they're like you and my, yeah. it's like our age, right? They kind of had to get through from Jordan to Bronny, right? And, and, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how they follow in the footsteps of all the hate that was thrown these guys' way for basically choosing where they wanted yeah. to work and what they wanted to be known for which I think is tremendously unfair. And I wonder if when people read my book in like 15 years, if they'll be like, what was all this shade about? It's tremendously normal, right? To to want to be able to choose where you would work, who would employ you. I think that's an extremely normal and relatable <laughs> thing. Within sports, of course, uh, it's reacted to quite differently. The The kind of like criticism of player empowerment. What's behind it? What are the different strands all wrapped in up within this kind of like broad denouncement of uh, of a movement within sports for players to have more say within their careers? Your read of it. I think a lot of people would say there's a resentment as small market team fan bases are eschewed in favor of national, international, social powered personality A-listers, Right. But a lot of that individualism goes back a ways. And I had a really interesting conversation with Dr. J, who actually forced his way onto certain teams back in the day, yep. just like Wilt did, like Kareem did. And he was saying, quote, there's a responsibility that comes with the territory. The building of the super teams, what happened in Miami, what exists now, is definitely player-driven and very self-serving. I'm not hating on it, but there's a difference. Service to yourself and service to the game. And he went on to say that LeBron in particular has empowered himself to empower other people. He's been generous with his platform. So I think there's like player empowerment in the kind of, oh, that's annoying. He ditched us for the Bay kind of a thing. And then there's the real player empowerment, which is pushing it forward to that next generation, to the broader world. And I think how you negotiate that is twofold. Do you do it in the safe, mass audience, friendly President LeBron kind of a way? Or do you do it in that kind of badass, Kyrie fist in the air kind of a way where you know you're so empowered, you're not going to lose that Nike deal. Just go for it and call out the haters, the racists, whatever you want, and not worry about the backlash. LeBron says he's not worried about the backlash, but he's trying to kind of guard 
the entire league from that. He's like a big halo shield, and Kyrie's just like coming up from the back, guns blazing. Uh, and then finally, just what was the most surprising anecdote you think that you that you learned in the course of uh, writing this book? It's Can't Knock the Hustle, which is available now wherever you get your books. Please support your local bookstore if you can. Uh, Matt, it's the author is Matt Sullivan, who I'm talking to now. Yeah, what was the most surprising thing you learned uh, through the course of this? You know, I was always watching the anthem just because I at Bleacher Report we'd done a lot of reporting. Our friend Rembert had written a big piece with with me about Kaepernick and just kind of thinking about the arc of that. I was surprised how much the NBA had cracked down on the anthem without us knowing about it. Uh, Adam Silver was really worried that players would take a knee after Trump went after the Warriors and Kaepernick this kind of crazy weekend when Kaepernick's gesture was really watered down, like Jerry Jones was taking a knee. And for a lot of players, it was like, uh, okay. But guys got over the anthem. And I thought it was interesting how players would talk to me, you know, with the deal that this, I wouldn't tweet about things for two years, that it feels like we're looking at a flag that's kind of like the Confederate flag. Wilson Chandler was alluding to how... You know, this country hasn't done any more for him than the Confederacy did and not apples to apples, but but like that. And then just watching this year, even as my book was heading to the printers, like Kyrie, KD, DeAndre Jordan, other guys around the league would just disappear after, you know, a couple of layup lines. The lights would go down and they'd come back out for starting lineups as the lights came up like nothing had happened, which they're not really trying to make some huge statement, but I'm just, it's interesting to me how this performative patriotism has become just a thing that guys eye roll at. And so as as such a divisive part of our kind of political activist, cultural melange, I feel like that fight is almost over. And these guys are learning the limits of advocacy and activism and figuring out how to really get shit done. And it's kind of a know your role situation where I am not an activist in the streets. I am not the president of the United States. What do I do with my clout other than tweet? And I think that question is unknown. And I think it'll be interesting once we get out of this weird injury plague, still COVID-filled season, if they can pick back up the mantle going forward. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a great way to put it. I also think that there's something of there's something about a window in time as well, too, right? Where it's Certain things, uh, certain ways to push the envelope, um, those things are only available during a certain window of time uh, that exists within the broader conversation around social justice and things that are happening with the country and other times, those, you know, protests around the anthem, et cetera, are going to be judged in a different light than they will be as protests are going on, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating account. You did a masterful job, uh, and it's great to talk to you. Uh, you Matt too, Sullivan man. is an editor at the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, and Esquire, and uh, Bleacher Report. And he has written a, a fantastic book, an account of the rise of the Brooklyn Nets super team called "Can't Knock the Hustle." Get it wherever you get your books. Thanks, man. Go Knicks.
This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 in two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.